So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we come to verses 6 to 13 here in lesson number 8 as we close out this part of the year. And really, if you look at it, we're closing out about the first half of the book of this letter. It's sort of like James in the sense that the first two chapters were half and then the final three were half in this book. It looks like about the first three are half and then uh, the next two is the second half of the book. Now, let me remind you again, um, to get a running start of where we're at, uh, really, the first three chapters of this letter are sort of a, a running commentary by the apostle, the writer of the letter, um, about the events that had taken place in Thessalonica when he first went there. Uh, you remember we've spent a little time sort of weaving this letter into the narrative of the book of Acts, so we we know where Paul was and with his friends Silas and Timothy when they went there and uh, the events that took place to drive them out of there, and then where they went after that, and so forth. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Um, But it's almost as though Paul uses the entire first half of this very short letter just to remind them of the fact that he was there, preached the gospel to them, then he was forced out, and then later, when he was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to them to get a report because he was concerned about them and so on. And so it's it's the first three chapters are a rehearsal of all of the past. And then starting in chapter 4, uh, he moves to the questions or the issues that he has. Now, one there's, there's a bit of a transition at the beginning of chapter 4. In fact, the first uh, 12 verses or so of chapter 4 will be the next lesson we'll be looking at. It's a bit of a transition to the actual discussion. So Paul's going to turn his attention from rehearsing the past to a discussion of where he wants to go from here. So it's a little bit of him saying, this is what I want from you into the future, and then let me now answer your questions that you have. Okay, so But it's the same idea. He starts with the rehearsal in the first three chapters, and then he moves in chapters 4 and 5 to what he wants uh, to accomplish. He's reminding his friends there at Thessalonica, co-followers with him in Christ, uh, of the reason that he sent Timothy back, especially in verses uh, 217 uh, to 3.5. He's reminding them of the fact that he had sent Timothy back to them to exhort and encourage them to remain faithful, to stay faithful to the gospel. He sent a messenger back to them to say, I can't come, but I'm sending someone else back to encourage you, to exhort you, Uh, to remain faithful in the midst of opposition which was predestined to come. All right. So in other words, in this last section we looked at in the previous lesson, the main point is, you remember, that Paul says, remember, when I came to you and I preached the gospel to you, I told you the cost of embracing Christ. The world is going to reject the message of the Christ, and more importantly, it's going to reject those who rege- who accept the message of the Christ. It's going to oppose those who embrace Christ by faith. And so I told you that you were predestined for this opposition because it's a part of the natural reality of being a follower of Christ. I told you that, so you know that. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. So by sending Timothy back to you, I'm encouraging you and exhorting you to remain faithful in the midst of what you knew was going to come in the first place and exactly what you knew was going to happen. We as Christians should never be surprised that the world hates us. 
The world hates the message of Christ. The world hates the church. The world hates the scriptures. Because when the reprobate man is faced with the gospel, faced with the scriptures, it, it indicts him. It brings him to his state of guilt. Interesting how this overlaps with what we were talking about this morning in Jude, in that the very essence of the gospel message in front of the reprobate man is to make him feel guilty. It brings that guilt to the surface. It bubbles it up because he's guilty. He stands reprobate before God. He stands in rebellion. And so his natural tendency is either to indulge his senses, his pleasures, as James or Jude puts it, in order to try to assuage that guilt or to to destroy the messenger that brings the message of guilt. So we we are the ones that bring the message. Our very lives represent the message. Whether we actually preach the gospel or not is irrelevant. People driving by the church look at the church and they grit their teeth because it it, it just brings out that guilt in them. That's what we should expect. That's normal. I mean, I, I realize that for the last 100 years or so, Christians have been told that that's not normal. And for the last 240 years in this country, we've sort of been led to believe that, well, Christians should be able to just go about their business, believe what they believe, the rest of the world will accept it, and sometimes even embrace it, quote, quote, culturally, to be a part of the reality. But that is no longer the case, is it? I mean, the 1950s and 60s and 70s reality of the culture being pretty much Christianized is gone. Okay, so just like in Thessalonica, the believers there were facing a world, a culture, a society, a way of thinking, a worldview that was utterly opposed to the gospel. Paul says to them, I told you that. I told you that when I preached the gospel to you. You still believed anyways. You embraced the gospel. You understood it. You recognized this opposition was going to come. So I'm sending Timothy back. I sent Timothy back to exhort you and encourage you to stay faithful even in the midst of what you knew was already coming. Okay, that sets the stage then for the report that Paul gets back. Okay, so this lesson now, the report from Thessalonica part two, deals with the fact that Timothy has come back. I am convinced that Paul wrote this letter very quickly after Timothy's return. I would not be surprised at all, frankly. I can't prove this, of course. But I would not be surprised at all if the moment Timothy walks in the door, sits down with Paul and says, here's what I've learned from Thessalonica, that Paul immediately gets out a writing instrument and some papyri to write back. I would not be surprised at that at all. I can almost sense that Paul wants to communicate back when he gets this report. Okay, Here's what he says. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Now, it's a complex sentence, but it has a few things to keep in mind. Number one, Timothy reports four things that are true of the Thessalonian church, the believers in Thessalonica. Number one, He reports that they are still trusting in Christ. They continue to walk by faith. They continue to believe the message that Paul had had, had given them. So they are still followers. They have not fallen away into apostasy because of the opposition that has come against them. I think more than anything else, that's probably the best news that Paul could hear. They're still trusting the message. They're still believers. But secondly, he also, Timothy also reports that they love each other. 
he says they that, that he says that Timothy has come and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. I'm going to separate those two things because I think they're different. In the first case, Paul says, Timothy comes to us and says, you're still trusting in Christ, but you're also exercising love. And what he means by that is the outgrowth of your faith in Christ has resulted in you loving each other. I mean, isn't that how it's supposed to work, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great command, great commandment. So, The bottom line is, as Paul says, this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you have faith, not only in Christ, but you have love for one another. They're intimately tied together, correct? Okay, so Paul says the good news, the first two points of this good news is you have faith and you have love. But thirdly, and this is also good news to Paul, they remember him and his team with kindness, with kindly. They, they, They still look upon Paul fondly. They, they are still communicating, they communicated through Timothy and still communicating this idea that, Paul, when you came here, you preached to us, we learned something, and because of that, we think of you fondly. We think of you as someone who has had an impact on our lives, and we think of you fondly. I can I think back in my own life, for example, of the number of people that have been uh, important to me along the way who have helped me. Uh, some that I have known directly and some that I have not. We live in an electronic age, so you can you can now be mentored by people that you've never met. Uh, you know, I was mentored by James Boyce, for example, uh, into Reformed theology. I knew the man only in passing. He's dead now, but he would never even, he wouldn't remember me from Adam. That's okay. I was still mentored by the man. But I have other men that I know directly and personally, like Dr. Kimbrell up in Laurel. He has had a profound effect. Uh, upon my theology and helping me to to understand the depth of this of this word, we have these people in our lives, and so for the Thessalonians, they look upon Paul, Silas, and Timothy as those kind of men. You were instrumental in us uh, coming to faith in Christ, and there's a sense that we look back with fondness upon such people who help us in that way. And then finally, not only do they have faith and love. And remember the team well, but they long to see them. There's a the fondness extends to a sense of well, we were good friends at one time, but no, we still want to keep a connection to you. We look forward to you coming. They long that they long to see Paul again and to rekindle the close relationship that existed between them and to continue the discipleship that was abruptly ended. Now. We have no evidence of whether Paul actually ever made it back to Thessalonica. It's possible that after the book of Acts closes and Paul's released from prison, that he goes back to Asia Minor. We know that because he wrote to Timothy at Ephesus. So we know he had some connection to the churches in Asia Minor. Whether he actually was able to cross over into Macedonia and revisit the Thessalonians again, we don't know. We don't have any record of it. But it would seem that they wanted that, that they desired that, because they believed that Paul was important. They remembered him with kindness. And I think one of the things to keep in mind here is we've already noted back in chapter 2, 17 to 20, that Paul had written about the relationship that he had with the Thessalonians, or, or better, how he considered the relationship that he had with the Thessalonians to be more than just co-believers in Christ or fellow believers in Christ. He considered the relationship that he had with them, and I think this would be true of everyone that Paul converted in every place that he went to, 
that he didn't just consider them co-believers or co-elect individuals, but considered them family, brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses this language a lot in his writings. He speaks of this idea very strongly, for example, uh, in Romans chapter 8. He considered the relationship that he had with the Thessalonian believers to be as though he were a brother to them, and they were brothers and sisters to him in a family relationship under Jesus Christ and the Father. So they were more than just friends or co-believers. They were siblings in an eternal family that was headed up by God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and Jesus Christ then being the elder brother of that relationship. That's the picture that Paul paints in the New Testament. The relationship that true believers have throughout the world is not just, well, he's a Christian and you're a Christian and I'm a Christian and we go on a merry way. Now, there's something eternal that God the Father has created between us in that even a true believer living in China is a brother or sister in Christ. And we will spend all eternity together as the elect in this family relationship in the presence of the Father and the Son uh, in the eternal kingdom when Christ comes and establishes it. And so for Paul, he's not writing this letter back and just saying, yeah, I know we're just kind of friends and so I'm, you know, I'm hoping to see you someday again, maybe our paths will cross. No, he's got a very different view of the relationship he now has with these people. They belong to the family of God. And that changes everything. It changes everything about much of what he's going to write in this letter. I would argue, in fact, and I would have you to keep that thought in mind as we continue the rest of the letter. Because as he moves into the advice that he begins to give, starting in chapter 4, that advice is going to come out of the advice of a man who's not just someone standing in authority like an apostle and saying, I expect you to behave in a certain way. This is going to be a man who is lovingly trying to help his fellow believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to be what he knows there to be. In fact, if you look at the beginning of chapter 4, the issue is going to be about their holiness, their purity, their sanctification. is going to be a key beginning topic for Paul. So it's deeply important to Paul that his relationship with them is built on more than just a couple of people who have confessed Christ and have some sort of connection. You know, as though they're the Thessalonian denomination of believers and he belongs to the Corinthian denomination of believers and the two shall not meet. That's not how Paul would have observed his relationship. So it is upon that basis that we have this strange statement in verse 7. For this reason, what reason? Well, the reason he just gave, which is, Timothy told us about your love and your faith and your kindness towards us, viewing us kindly and your desire to see us. For this reason, brothers, and again, there's my proof that what I'm saying is true. He uses the word brothers, okay. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Okay, so let's think about what he's saying here. You remember in the lesson, question 3a, I had you scan the book of Acts from chapters 17 and 18, basically from the time period of when Paul left Thessalonica to the time period that he wrote his letter. Okay, now again, it's probably not a very long period of time. I'm guessing no more than three months. But I, you know, I, again, I can't prove that except to say that's just a guess. The amount of time it would have taken Paul to leave 
from Thessalonica, spend a little time at Berea, and then head south through the mountainous regions of central Greece to reach Athens, and then at Athens have his time there with the various uh, folks at the uh, Areopagus, Mars Hill, and then at that point send Timothy back, and then he himself traveled to Corinth and spent some time there waiting for Timothy to eventually come back. It's not going to be that long of a period of time. I don't think that Timothy was back in Thessalonica for too terribly long. But you remember an examination of the book of Acts from about 1710 to 1817, which would be about the period of time between the ending of Thessalonica and the time in Corinth, when Paul wrote this letter. There is no listed persecution or serious opposition of the apostle in that period of time. Yes, in Berea, the town was riled up, but it doesn't say that they came out and arrested Paul and threw him in jail like they did in Thessalonica, like they did in Philippi. They didn't do that in Berea. He left town peaceably. When he got to Athens, there was no great outcry of the city against him. Again, he wasn't arrested. He certainly would have had his disagreements, quote-unquote, with the philosophers at Mars Hill. They would not have accepted his message. Some did. There were a few. Remember, the book of Acts does list a few that came to faith. There's no mention of the church at Athens later but there's probably one small one there. But Paul leaves Athens and moves on to Corinth without any persecution or opposition. And when he arrives at Corinth, he does go to the synagogue and preach, and the Jews don't want to have anything to do with him. Okay, I wouldn't call that opposition or persecution because he walked into that scenario. Okay, but then he moves next door to the house of Justice Titius, and while he's there, he gets a vision from Christ, Jesus himself, who comes to him and says, you're not going to be opposed in this city. I'm not allowing you to be persecuted here. And so for the next 18 months, he spends preaching in the city of Corinth without any serious opposition. So during the time frame of half, half, after having left Thessalonica and have gotten to Corinth and writing this letter, he doesn't have any significant affliction or persecution. And yet he says he is. He says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. So what is Paul talking about when he talks about affliction and opposition here? Two possibilities come to mind. One possibility is that Paul is simply referring here to the fact that when he, was, when he left from Thessalonica and the various places that he went along the way, he was opposed, quote-unquote, in the sense that people rejected his message. He went to the he went to some at in Athens. Most of the philosophers ignored him, thought he was foolish, argued with him, left him. There was, op- there was opposition, quote-unquote. When he got to Corinth, the Jews didn't accept the message. He had to go next door, so there was opposition. So Paul could simply be making reference here to the fact that while he's preaching the gospel along the way, there is a whole lot of people who hear the message and reject it. But in my humble opinion, I don't think Paul would ever consider that affliction. I don't think Paul would ever consider that opposition. Because Paul would say, that's the normal response to the gospel that you get from unelect people, from reprobate people. He wouldn't consider that a personal affront. In fact, if Paul considered it a personal affront that he was rejected by people and and then called it affliction and opposition, then why in the world would he walk into a synagogue in Corinth having after been rejected in every single synagogue that he went to prior to that? 
If that was opposition and persecution, why go looking for it by walking into the synagogue in Corinth? He would never have considered rejection to be the same as affliction. Okay, so I think there's something more to think about. Since there's no direct persecution of the apostle between Thessalonica and Corinth, I am convinced that what Paul means with this term affliction is that he had worry on his mind about the Thessalonians. The affliction was self-imposed in the sense that as he left Thessalonica and he left behind his now brothers and sisters in Christ in that place and wandered to Berea and then down into Athens and then down into Corinth, and he's got on his mind those believers in Thessalonica. And I suspect, by the way, if I might just extend Paul's thinking here, I don't have proof of this again, but it's good sanctified speculation. Paul's not just talking here about the Thessalonian believers. He's probably also talking about the believers at Philippi because he was persecuted in both places. And so as he comes out of Macedonia, which would include Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, now he didn't have any persecution in Berea, but he did have serious persecution in both Thessalonica and Philippi. So as he leaves those two places, he's now coming south, and he's thinking to himself, I wonder, I'm worried that they're staying faithful. I think this is a self-imposed form of worry in which Paul, I'm going to go so far as to say sinfully, is concerned about whether or not the Thessalonians are still remaining faithful. Now, why do I say sinful? Because Paul's theology is based on the very simple principle that God knows who his own are, God calls his own to himself with an effectual call to the gospel, and then God preserves them for himself. And so therefore, it's sinful because it's inconsistent for him to worry in his heart about whether those believers were staying firm in the faith, and at the same time walking around and saying, well, God knows who his own are, and he preserves them. That's hypocritical, isn't it? It's inconsistent for the apostle to say that. So I think Paul has been worrying here. He's been worrying about whether the Thessalonians are still staying faithful, if they're still loving each other, if they still think of him kindly. And I think, by the way, the fact that Timothy comes back and says, yes, they still think of you kindly, is a little bit of a hint here. Because why would Paul make mention of that? here if that wasn't a driving factor in his in his mind in his heart i wonder if they still think of us kindly there or if they've rejected the gospel thus they've rejected us maybe they maybe they've rejected the gospel and now they hate us because we brought a message that they've now rejected and the response of such an apostate would be to despise the person that brought the message so he he hints i think in this text of the idea that he's having this turmoil, he's had this turmoil in himself. And so Timothy shows up in Corinth and says, hey, Paul, guess what? They're still trusting in Christ. They still love you and me and Silas. They can't wait to see us again. And Paul breathes this huge sigh of relief. Oh, my worries were for nothing. Notice what he says. For now we live. What's the opposite of that? We're walking around like dead men. 
For now we live. We weren't living. We weren't really able to live before because our lives were filled up with worry and anxiety and concern about what was happening up there. And it almost felt like a a pale of death over us. But Timothy comes with this wonderful report. And now we live. Okay. Life is good again. You see? You get the picture? I think Paul... I think Paul is actually confessing here, in a sense, the fact that he had this worry over himself, over these people. And it it was a sinful thing for him to do so. And he's confessing that. He, he has to say, we felt this affliction, this opposition, even in the midst of everything else. And we, we worried. We shouldn't have. We shouldn't have. We know what God is capable of doing. And so he says that he's comforted in that they're standing fast in the Lord. So Paul says, for now we live. And so I think Paul, based on verses 6 to 8, would rate the faith of the Thessalonians here as a deeply held, greatly pleasing faith to the apostle. That's how I think he would view it. The report he's gotten back from Timothy is, oh, they're staying faithful in the face of opposition. The church is going strong. They are, they are still living for Christ. They're loving each other. Uh, they want us to come back because they want to go further with this. And so this idea, I think Paul would, would, would rate their faith as top-notch. And the fact that we have a letter in our Bible written to this little church kind of sends that message, doesn't it? You look carefully in your Bible, you don't see a letter written to Berea, do you? There's one written to the church at Berea. Now, Paul may have written to the church at Berea, for all we know, but we don't have it. We do have a letter to the Philippian church. And if you've ever studied the letter of Philippians, if you've ever spent some time in that letter, you get the very distinct impression that the church at Philippi was one of Paul's favorite churches of all the ones he planted. I've done studies through Philippians. It's one of the things we did in BSF as our, um, our uh, what did we call it? We called it our, um, oh, the word escapes me. It's before the class actually started, we had to do an initial class in order to prove to headquarters that we could actually start a class. And so they sent us a study of Philippians. It was five weeks. And so we had a five-week little sort of an introduction BSF. This was long before you came, at the very beginning of it. And so we had to do that. Well, I spent that time in Philippians, and I've preached through Philippians before as well. And I'm convinced that the letter to the Philippians is a letter to one of, uh, one of Paul's letters in which he, he really writes to them as though he's they're really important to him. It's one of his most important churches. And as I spend time in this letter too, I'm getting that impression as well. The more time I spend in this letter, the more impression I'm getting, especially as we get into four, five, and as we get into four and five, and, and even into Second Thessalonians, that Paul really considered this church important. So Paul is breathing this massive sigh of relief that, oh, yes, they're still staying faithful to the Lord. They're still trusting in Christ. They're still believing in the message that we gave them. They still love us. All of our worries were for naught. And that's a good thing. So he says then in verse 9, okay, let's transition out of that then. So he's, in verses 6, 7, and 8, you have this sense of Paul just sort of gushing out this sense of great satisfaction and comfort and, and, and freedom, if you will, all right? 
relief, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But now notice verse 9. So now Paul asks a question. You'll notice that verses 9 and 10 in the ESV, most, most modern Bibles, make verses 9 and 10 one long sentence with a question mark. Now, if you know anything about Koine Greek, you know that, number one, there was no punctuation in any of the text. Okay? And secondly, there were no spaces, even, between the words or between the letters. So it's one great big running set of letters. Okay? Now, even if we do that in English, you can read it. You, can, you put the spaces in yourself. And so for men who are familiar with Greek, they can just put it in. The problem, however, is when it comes to punctuation. Things like commas and question marks and things like that. We're not quite sure, so you have to think about the text and then you have to think about the context of the text, and you have to make some assumptions. Okay, as you're reading through this, what is it, what is it saying? All right, in this case then, the translators, at least the ESV translators, have said, this is probably Paul asking a rhetorical question. Now, you know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question is one that doesn't have, is not expecting an answer. The answer is assumed in the question. Okay, so he asked this question. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now, that's a massive run-on sentence, but it's a question, and it starts with this. For what thanksgiving can we give to God? for what we are feeling and what we are hoping to see happen in the future. Okay, so you can, you can take this and start it as a question, for what Thanksgiving can we get? And then there's two legs upon which it stands. One, for all that we have heard about you, and secondly, what we hope will come in the future. Okay, that's two legs of this stool. So he asks this rhetorical question, is there anything that we could possibly give to God out of gratitude for what he has accomplished in you? Or, to make it stronger, is there anything that we could give thanks to God for, one, knowing that you're still going strong in your faith, and two, hoping and praying that we can go back to sea? Okay, so he's, he's saying, what can we possibly give to God out of gratitude for what he has accomplished? Now, the reason why I call it a rhetorical question is because the answer is obvious. The answer is, we can give nothing. Because we can be grateful to God, but we can't give him anything because he has done the work from beginning to end. This is another reason why I think that the previous three verses are an admission of worry on the part of Paul. Because what is he saying? He is saying, thank God that he has held you fast in faith. That's the essence of the question. Thank God that he has kept you faith in the faith. It's Again, it's an admission. What's the admission? We couldn't do it, and we worried for nothing. Because God could do it, and God did it. And we shouldn't have been worried. So he turns around and says, now, so what could we possibly give to God out of thanksgiving? It is an admission by Paul that the faithfulness of the Thessalonians, the continuing faithfulness of the Thessalonians, is entirely by God's grace over them. It's entirely by God choosing to hold them fast himself, choosing them first to be his own, and then choosing to hold them fast himself in however he was doing so up there in that city. He knows that he and his team 
were unable to stay there and hold the Thessalonians faithful. He knows that. So what did he have to do? He had to trust them to the Lord as he left. Well, Paul didn't seem to do that so well, did he? He struggled with that. Now, look, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm giving Paul a, a black eye a little bit here in all of this and in, in this, but I think any of us would probably feel exactly the same way. We had spent some time in this city. We saw some people come to faith. We saw a good work being done, and then we leave, and all we can say is, Lord, I'm turning these people over to you, so do with them what you will. They're yours. They've always been yours. All the work that any success that I had has only been because of what you have done. So I'm just going to turn them over to you. But we're still going to drive away and think to ourselves, gee, I wonder what's going to happen in the future. I wonder if they're going to stay faithful. I wonder if they're going to continue to, you know, who's the Lord going to bring there to continue the process? And so it goes, you know, sort of like the conversation we were having a few minutes ago. Okay, so the reality is, is that Paul is admitting here, I think, that There is nothing he can give to God. He is forced to give the credit to the Lord, which I think he relishes doing. Okay, He relishes being able to say, I'm so glad that the Lord held them fast. Even though I was forced to leave, he held them fast. And so his reaction to Timothy's report is to be grateful to God that he did a miraculous work. And there's nothing that Paul and his team can do but be thankful. But there's two sides to this thankfulness, as I said. One is he's thankful for the fact that they have continued in faith. Okay, so he's he's able to say, I am, I am relishing the idea that, Lord, you kept them faithful, but there's a another side to this, which again reveals a bit more about the character of the apostle. He says then, in verse 10, not only that we are filled with joy of the fact that you're still faithful, but... We also are praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Okay, so the other leg of the stool is Paul is saying how grateful to the Lord he is that the Lord has held these Thessalonian believers fast in their faith in the face of the opposition, an opposition they knew was coming because Paul had told them they stayed faithful, the Lord kept them faithful, the Lord sent good men and whatever the Lord did to accomplish it, they stayed faithful. But Paul also knows that there is more that they need. The work of discipleship is never finished. The work of discipleship in the heart and mind of a believer is never completed in this life. And I'm convinced even that after our glorification, there will still be much to learn about an eternal God, an infinite God. Eternal too, yes, but infinite. Look, no, none of us should assume that when we are glorified before Christ in the eternal kingdom that we're suddenly going to become omniscient and know all there is to know. That's not going to happen. We have been created by God to be learning creatures. God doesn't learn, right? Again, that's a very controversial statement in many evangelical circles today, but the bottom line is, from a biblical perspective, God does not learn. All that God knows, he knows, and he knows it infallibly, and there is nothing that can be known that God doesn't know. And in fact, God not only knows what he knows, but God also knows what he doesn't know, which is beyond our comprehension, right? God understands the concept of a square circle. You don't, but he does. 
Okay, because his infinite mind is capable of knowing all that is and all that could possibly be that isn't. Okay, so, but you and I are created as learning creatures. We are learning and we will continue to learn. And I think that even after our day of glory, we will still be learning from this infinite God and learning from all that he's created, exploring the creativity of this world that he has created in order to continue to grow in our understanding of him because this is what he has created us to be. Adam learned in the garden. He understood more. I mean, he had to have all the animals march in front of him and he gave them all a name. That's a learning process, right? He's learning who all these animals are. And then the woman shows up and he goes, oh, hey, I think I'm going to give her a name too. And I'm going to call her Out of Man. Perfect name for her. And so he calls her woman. Out of man. Okay, so out of man comes and out of man is now a part of man and he's learned a few things and and for all of us who are married, or have been married, we learn a few things after we get married, right? Learn a few things about this thing, this creature that God gave to you that's a little different from you, right? Similar to you and yet different from you. All of you would admit that you've learned something from your wife, right? And probably a few things the hard way. We're learning creatures. Okay. So Paul is assuming, and this is a point that we must never forget in the Christian church, discipleship never ends. You will never reach a point in this life where you will know all that there is to know about what God has revealed. I learn this more and more every week the older I get. The older I get, the more I realize how little I know. And I also come to realize how little time I have to learn it. The good news is I have an eternity to learn it, okay? But the bottom line is, is that there's more for us to learn. Paul's looking back at his friends at Thessalonica, and he's saying, oh, I'm so glad that you've stayed in the faith. That is good. But you must never assume that you've made it. And I'm not, this is Paul speaking, I'm not assuming that you've made it either. Yes, God has preserved you in the faith. But you still need to grow in that faith. You still need to understand more and more of what we have communicated. Look, if you don't believe me, there's two more chapters of this letter and another book to follow it, which is designed to be teaching material to help them understand things they don't understand now. So when Paul says, I want to come back, we want to come back and see you face to face and supply what is lacking, what he is saying is, you need discipleship. You still need to learn and to grow. And God has put men in position to help you learn. He has given you his word. He has given you his spirit. He has given you the church. He has given you brothers and sisters in Christ alongside of you in varying levels of maturity. All of that is designed to help you to continue to grow in your faith. And, of course, the argument I was making this morning out of the letter of Jude is we must contend for that faith in us. It's a fight. It's a fight. It's one we need to get in there and fight. We can't just stand back and go, well, I'll just wait for it to come by osmosis. Right? You know, I'll just stick my Bible under my pillow when I sleep at night, and that'll fill my head with all the knowledge I need to know about Jesus. That's preposterous, isn't it? What do we need to do? We need to fight the natural tendency in ourselves to think we've made it. We need to fight the natural tendency in ourselves to think, I know all that I need to know. No, no. I assure you, none of us know all that this word has revealed. Every single time I take out this book and read it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's new. I didn't realize that before. Oh, well, that's remarkable. I imagine this happens to you as well. The bottom line is, is that 
Paul wants to go back because he knows that there is still work that needs to be done in the life of the Thessalonians. One of the reasons why we do this Bible study is to help men to grow in their faith, to continue to learn and understand. It's disappointing when men don't come, when you have that, you give them that opportunity. It's disappointing that they don't see that. Well, it's okay. I understand. The fact is, is that not all are convinced that what I just said is true. That it is essential to grow in discipleship. The bottom line is, you know, we prioritize things. There's an old saying that says, you will pursue those things you want to pursue. Right? You only pursue the things you want to pursue. Okay. So the bottom line is we need to continue to pray and that's what Paul is doing here, pray that we will have opportunity to discipleship. That's what Paul is saying. So verses 11 to 13 are the prayer. Okay? Notice how Paul does this. Paul's a remarkable rhetorician, to be honest with you. He talks about a prayer. He asks a question regarding praying to God, and then he turns around and writes the prayer itself right into the text. It's on his mind, and it's on his heart. Again, I think Paul wrote this very shortly after Timothy showed up. Because as soon as he got the report from Timothy, his reaction is to say, this is what we've been praying for. And there's more that I want to have happen. We've been praying for your faith to come. That's the first leg of the stool. We've been praying for your faith to to be strong. Okay, the Lord has answered that prayer. So now here's the second leg of that stool. This is what we want. And so he writes it down immediately. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of his Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And you can write the word amen after that sentence, right? Because it's a prayer. It's what he wants. Okay, what does he want? Well, he says first, he says, may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Okay, that one's easy. That's the easy part of the prayer. He's simply asking God to somehow direct our path back, okay? Lord, I'm down here in Corinth. Timothy has come back. Silas and I and Timothy, along with Aquila and Priscilla here, we're doing a work here in Corinth to preach the gospel. Could you somehow get us back to Thessalonica? We're here in Corinth. We're here because we believe you're directed our steps here. So could you direct our steps back? Okay, that's the easy part of the prayer. But it's the rest of it that's more difficult. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Okay, so his second part of the prayer is simply, I think, an extension of what he's already grateful for, what he said he's grateful for in the, in the uh, report that Timothy brought. They're living by faith, Paul, and they're loving one another. And so Paul says, well, I'm just going to ask God that they'll love each other even more. Why? Because a love for others in greater measure implies a faith in Christ in greater measure. Our love for each other is contingent upon our faith in Christ. You want to get people to love each other more in the church? You do it by increasing their trust in Christ. Now, in the evangelical church, typically it's done this way. 
we're going to try to get you to love him, and then we're going to try to get him to love him, and then him to love him, and him to love him, and we're going to put programs together that do that, where we're going to set up systems, where we're going to get guys together, where they're going to start finding things in common with each other and so forth, and that'll increase love for one another. It doesn't work. Never does. Oh, it may have short-term effect. It may produce a few little clicks in the church that sort of get along, but it doesn't create the kind of real cross-the-board love that produces a real relationship between all of the people of the church. It creates pockets of it, but it doesn't create a totality of it. it it's, it's very much the picture, you've probably heard this illustration, I've used it before. I heard it in the very first sermon that I ever heard after becoming a believer. I remember it vividly. The man said there's two ways to tune a dozen pianos in a circle. One way will work, one way won't. He said the first way is to tune the first piano to a tuning fork, get it in tune, and then tune the second piano to the first, and then tune the third to the second, and the fourth to the third, all the way around the circle. But by the time you get to the twelfth piano, it's no longer going to be in tune with the first. Okay, so that's the, that's the man-centered approach of trying to make Roger and Roger love each other and then Roger and Ron love each other in the hope then that Ron and Roger will love each other. If we can get Ron then to love less, then we can maybe hope that it'll work its way back to Roger and so on. It's futile. It doesn't work, right? But there's a second way to tune a dozen pianos in a circle, and that's to tune the first piano to a central tuning fork and the second piano to the same central tuning fork, and the third to the center, and so on all the way around. And here's what you'll discover. By the time you get to the 12th piano, all 12 of the pianos will be perfectly in tune with each other. Because why? They're attuned to their center. That's what discipleship is about. Discipleship should be about those of us in discipling roles helping others to be tuned to Christ. And guess what will happen? We will then become in tune with one another. If we will love God more and more and more, we will, by definition, then love one another more and more and more. If we trust God more and more and more, then we will then work out our relationship with one another in this world better. Because the focus will be upon him, and thus, with all of our focus in the same place, we will all naturally become in tune with one another. So when Paul makes this statement, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, that's a key phrase in there, as we do for you. He is implying it's not just you know person A loving person B and then person B loving person C. No, it's all of you having a love for one another, an agape form of love for them. By the way, this word love in all these references is agape. This agape love for one another, this God-centered love that God has, not some emotional feel-good sense of one another, but this sense of truly building into each other's lives where we are so in tune with each other that we are thinking alike and we're praising God together and worshiping alike and building our lives together, walking towards the one path, the one goal, which is Christ Jesus himself. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, so he says, so that, now this verse 13 then becomes the killer verse here, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of Christ. What does he want? When he says, establish your hearts, 
When we talk about the heart of a man, we talk about the control center of a man. The heart of a man is the control center of a man. It's that part within him that is who he is, but it's also all of his will, his emotion, his his outlook, his worldview, his understandings, all of what his experiences have done to him. It's the core of a man. In some ways, we call it the soul. I think the New Testament, in many ways, uses heart and soul somewhat synonymously in the text. But the heart is typically perceived to be the the, the soul of a man, his core. By the way, in the New Testament, in the New Testament era, in the first century, the heart was perceived by the Greek philosophers as the place of reason and intellect and, and volition. The will. This is the place of thought. This is the place of will. And guess where your emotions came from? Your gut. It was from your gut. We, we talk about a gut feeling. It comes out of Greek philosophy, this idea that it's down here where our emotions are. You'll notice the makeup of a man in Greek thinking. And this would have been true in Paul's day. This is where we start. This is the control center, which should be controlling what's coming out of here. Notice it starts up here and works its way down. The emotions in Greek philosophy, and even in the Christian religion, are considered secondary, always secondary, to the core volitional nature of a man and his mind. It is out of the mind and out of the heart, Jesus says, that flow the nature of the man. In fact, that's the point I was making in James. Your language is a reflection of who you are at your core. It comes out of your nature, how you speak, the words that you speak, and the content of your language. The, the, the reality is, is, that, is that Paul is praying that God would establish their hearts. What does he want? He wants their born-again, regenerated hearts to be established in the entirety of their lives, to flow out in every aspect of their lives. The born-again man is a man who has been radically altered by the Spirit of the living God through the preaching of the Word. He has been radically altered at his core that every aspect of his life must reflect that difference. The thinking process of the man is different. The emotional life of the man is different. The the, the volition of the man, his moral choices are different. His desires are different. His goals and aspirations are different. His view of the world is different. Because the Spirit of God has put within him a heart that has an entirely new nature to it. He's taken out that old rebellious heart of stone and given us one that now, well, primarily loves God above all things. Therefore, a man who has a heart that loves God above all things should reflect that love of God in all of his life, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, the great commandment. Okay, it's flowing out of that picture. What the Spirit of God has put into us is a heart which loves him. But you know what? The flesh is weak and sinful. And so what we need is we need for the Spirit of God to continue to fan the embers of that new heart into flame into every aspect of our lives into every part of our being, so that we think like Christ, we choose like Christ, we feel like Christ, we, we see the world through the eyes of Christ, right? Or, as one philosopher said, we think God's thoughts after him. Because we look at God and we see 
how he thinks. Okay, so what is Paul praying for? Oh, I'm praying for you Thessalonians that the work that God has begun in you by bringing you to faith in Christ through our preaching, which wasn't much, but we did that, and then we were forced to leave, and the Spirit of God held you fast. Oh, but what we want now is for you to be established in every aspect of your life. That, by the way, is the very definition of discipleship, is it not? The very essence of discipleship is is taking a man and helping him not only to understand the facts, it's good to understand the facts, yes, but that those facts begin to impact how we think and how we live, the choices we make, right? I'm always impressed when I hear of people who are saying, you know what, I have an opportunity to move to another place, okay? My, my boss has given me an opportunity to go to another place, but I'm wondering whether I should go there because my connection to the church is wanting me to stay here. Pass up an opportunity to go and make something of myself in another place because I have made a connection to people in the church that I simply can't break. I'm too much a part of their lives. They're too much a part of mine. And I'm willing to forgo something the world would offer me in the favor of that. Now, that really impresses me when I hear people. I don't hear it very often, but, you know, But nonetheless, it's when people say that or think like that. It indicates to me, and I'm taking no credit for this whatsoever, but it indicates to me that the process of discipleship that's been happening in their lives is such that it's producing a sense of real love for other believers that they're with, and they're desiring to know more and more, and it's changing them. It's changing their nature. It's changing the way that they think about the world and the values of the world and the offers of the world and the promotions of the world. Paul says, oh, that God would establish your hearts. But he says, not only establish your hearts, but establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Because look, listen, if you hear nothing, hear this. The Lord our God has saved you, not so you go to heaven when you die. The Lord God has saved you to make you holy to rid you of everything in this world that's sinful, to rid you of everything in this world that is corrupt and opposite of his nature as perfect and holy. Paul says the fundamental reality of discipleship isn't just to get you to love each other. That's great, and it's wonderful when that happens, and your connection to others is great. But fundamentally, when when the discipleship that is occurring is driving sin out of your life, giving you power to overcome the temptations that you have, the sinful habits that seem to follow you around, gives you power to overcome them. Now, there's no promise here that you will be able to accomplish that perfectly in this life. Paul is simply praying for God to accomplish his will in the purpose that he has in bringing the people to himself. He knows that God himself has designed this in such that while we are living in this world, we will continue to struggle with our fleshly nature. But what we should see happening in us, and this is a, this is a dipstick you should have in your life, is you should be seeing more and more ability over time to withstand temptation and to turn from certain sins. You should be able to see that in your life. If you're not, then you need to be asking yourself, Maybe I'm not in the right place being discipled, or maybe these people aren't discipling me right. 
Again, my job as a discipler is to fix your eyes on Christ in the hope that you'll look upon him and say, well, he's holy, I should be holy. He's blameless, I should be blameless. Because he has purchased me, made me his own. He owns me, and what has he commanded me? Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? Didn't he say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Did he say, you must be perfect? Didn't he say to the Pharisees, your perfection, your religiosity, ain't even close? Perfection is necessary. And Paul goes then one step further and says, not only does, does he pray that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God, but at a specific point in time. When? And the answer is, when Christ returns. Why? Because when Christ returns, that is the time in which Christ is going to gather every single human that has ever lived and bring that person before his throne and judge him for what he has done. And we're all going to be judged for what we have done. Christian or non-Christian, reprobate or elect, doesn't matter. We're all going to stand before God and we're going, the books, plural, books, Revelation 20, are going to be opened and Jesus is going to look at everything that we've done. But he's going to know by looking into the book and seeing the actions of the individual which ones belong to him and which ones are goats. He's going to know that. Why? Because he himself has established that new heart in them and they begin with that new heart now living a life pursuing holiness. Never to perfection and never as good as we would like to. But still he sees it. It's there. It's visible. There's evidence of the born-again man in his actions. Paul says we need you, Thessalonians up there in Macedonia, I am praying that I get an opportunity to go back and visit you there and impart more wisdom and understanding of these things, not just to make you full of head knowledge, but to, to cause God the Father to establish you blameless, bit by bit, day by day that I might be a part of God's purpose in your lives to actually come to you and bring you more holiness, more blamelessness before Christ. So as we, as we come to the end of chapter 3 then, as I said at the beginning, this is a rehearsal of all that Paul had done in the past and why he had sent Timothy. And, and now as we come to the end of the chapter, Paul says, but I got a good report. Timothy brought me a good report. And it's a huge weight off my shoulders. I'm feeling free now. And I'm feeling so free that I'm now going to pray that God will give me an opportunity to come back and see you. Oh, I know what's waiting for me in Thessalonica. I know if I show my face in that city, it's going to be a problem. But you know what? It doesn't matter. The Lord has shown his power to keep you faithful there in the midst of that same kind of opposition. And so I'm just praying that the Lord will somehow direct my steps. But the goal isn't just for me, that is Paul, to come back and see you. No, the goal is for me to come back and help you to be what you're supposed to be what the Lord has called you to be and set you aside to be and given you a heart to be, that's what I want to help with. And I think Paul would utterly agree with me when I say that he believed that exactly for himself too, that the Lord would establish his heart blameless on the day of the coming of Christ, just as it would be for the Thessalonians. Remember, how did he think of them? Brothers and sisters, we're all in this together. 
We're all brothers. We're all even in this family. We're all equal in this family. I need to be made holy and blameless. You need to be made holy and blameless. Everybody involved in this great family that God has established needs to be blameless and holy because that's what God has purposed for all of those he's included in the family, in Christ Jesus. And so Paul ends this little rehearsal then <coughs> excuse me, with this prayer in the hope that one day he might get a chance to do this. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he's not going to be able to go back yet. So what can he do? Well, he can send a letter. He can send back a letter in which he gives them some instructions, and he starts, as I said a moment ago, he starts immediately with what he hopes they'll be. He says, for verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay? So he's going to say, in literal words, what I have just been preaching by intimation from the prayer up above. Paul is Paul the apostle. Paul the apostle is deeply concerned, was always deeply concerned during his during his ministry that those who came to faith in Christ came to faith in Christ to accomplish what the Father had purposed. Not just so that they would get to go to heaven when they die and all just get to the party. No, no. For the apostle Paul there was an immediate purpose, and the immediate purpose was that God had set aside a people to himself for the specific purpose of making them into versions of his own son. And he had purposed that, by the way, from before the foundation of the world, when he writes each of our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. He has a purpose. This is a radical thought in much of modern church today, right? Because a lot of people think, oh, you just get saved, you raise your hand, and, and I, yeah, I see that hand, and yes, I heard the prayer, and yes, okay, so you're going to go to heaven too, and you're going to heaven, great, we're all going to be in heaven someday. Uh, That's really, really shallow, unbelievably shallow, because what God has called us to is a life of struggle, as Jude says, contention for a faith within us to hold fast that faith and grow in that faith, we're going to have to be face opposition and persecution from a world that hates people who bother to believe that stuff. They're going to consider us foolish and stupid. So we're going to have outside pressure, inside pressure. And not only are we going to have opposition pressure, but we're going to have God's pressure too. Because what is he going to do? How does he grow faith? What's the soil that faith best grows in? Suffering. Suffering. But it's good, because that's what God has purposed to accomplish his will. So, Lord willing, after the first of the year, we'll come back and we'll continue our examination of 1 Thessalonians. But I hope now, as we close these three chapters, you're beginning to see the, the direction that Paul is going and why he's saying what he's saying. So he gets, it, gets the situation ready now to begin actually being more practical with them about what he's hoping for them. Here's, in other words, this is the indicatives, and we'll see the imperatives coming next.